I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning once again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of I-94. As always, my name is Jamie Trecker, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. Today, we are joined via the magic of the phone by the author of a new book called Bluff City, The Secret Life of Photographer Ernest Withers, Preston Lauterbach, who I believe is in Virginia. We're with you, Preston? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, yes. It's a treat to get to talk to such a distinguished panel. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's what we're known for, our distinction. <laughs> your, your dignity carries uh, much further than, uh, than the Chicago land. We well, all know that. Well, thank you very much. That's kind of you to say. So, uh, Bluff City is an interesting new book. It is about, let's just set it up a little bit before we get to Preston. And uh, he's written a number of other books, including The Chitlin Circuit, The Road to Rock and Roll. I should admit that this book is out from uh, W.W. Norton. The publishers like it when I say that. This is an interesting book. It is about a pioneering black photographer uh, who was working uh, in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee specifically, during the 1950s and 1960s who uh, was later discovered, not during his career, and I want to make that very clear, but after his tenure uh, as a photographer, to be an informant for the FBI. And Preston, I wonder if you could take us through why this interested you, because your own family has some intelligence ties as well as you detail in the start of the book. Yeah, well, you know, the the story interested me simply because it just was so shocking. Mr. Withers was himself a civil rights legend, having covered so many important stories from uh, the trial of Emmett Hill killers, you know, down in Mississippi in 55, the Montgomery bus boycott, all the way up through the sanitation strike uh, that led to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Withers was everywhere, and um, for him to have been a a witness to the civil rights movement, obviously such a, a sympathetic person in the way that he portrayed the movement and told the stories with his camera and risked uh, his own skin in so doing. It's such a shock and it was so incongruous to learn that he had been working secretly for the FBI all of those years. And so, yeah, I mean, you didn't really have to break it down further than that to get me interested. But coming from an intelligence family, to be specific about that, my grandfather was a CIA operative uh, in South America from the inception of the agency until he retired in, uh, well, actually, he, he left the field in 63 and retired in 73. So, you know, I, I have a, and he never talked about any of uh, his, his operations. He really believed in the ironclad oath, but we knew what he had done very generally, and he would make remarks about the nature of the work. And so, to me, uh, an intelligence operative is a, a fairly regular human being and not um, a guy in a tuxedo with paralyzing dart cufflinks and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so, so I, I brought a little bit of that perspective to, to Withers. I also had the opportunity to meet Withers and spend a little bit of time in his company and to kind of see him around Memphis. He was still working as a photojournalist up into his 80s, and so I, as a reporter, would run into him at events from time to time. And that was kind of surreal because he was such a uh, such an iconic figure, and, and to see that he was still working probably should have told me how poorly journalists are paid and sent me packing to another profession, to law school or something. But... Uh, you know, having all of those perspectives and then to learn after he had passed away that, that he had been an operative um, with the, the FBI, you know, generally considered to be the enemy of the civil rights movement. Uh, quite naturally, I had to look into that. Preston, I had a question for you uh, regarding Memphis, which I will tell you is my second favorite city in America after Chicago. Cool. Um, I cool. absolutely love it. But Memphis uh, is... The subject of all your books and it's also a very sec it's a secondary but also kind of overwhelms the entire book um and i just want to ask how come you're no longer in memphis i, I uh jamie mentioned you were in virginia and I, I hadn't read your bio in the back and i thought that you were in memphis right i i came to memphis as an outsider in 2004 though i was 
very much into the culture already. I grew up in Southern California with the Elvis fan uh, license plate frame on my car, the only kid at, at my high school who had that. And uh, so I was always very drawn to Memphis music and Memphis culture and eventually uh, married a Memphis girl while in graduate school in uh, my other home state of Virginia. And uh, so my wife and I moved back to Memphis in uh, 2004, 2005, and I really got immersed in the history and the people and the music and everything that I had kind of grown to love from afar. But we always knew this, that we wanted to uh, live our lives somewhere a little bit more peaceful and quiet, and so we moved up to the Blue Ridge Mountains about eight, seven years ago. Uh, but we're kind of part-time residents of Memphis anyway. We have a lot of family and friends and professional activities there. So we do pretty much everything there except vote and uh, sleep. But uh, we, are, we are still pretty regular in the community. and It's a big part of me. I, I will always love and cherish the city. And, and I appreciate the fact that you as a, a Chicago man dig the city too because it is its own it is its own special place. I mean, it has a, uh, much like Chicago, I mean, it has a real personality. It is not a cookie-cutter, strip-mall kind of town. I mean, it's, it's got its own characters, its own persona. I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating place. I'm a bit of a Stax fanatic, too, so I... Uh, yes, me uh, too. That museum is... Was that Otis Redding who was on Stax? Otis Redding was yep. on Stax, and uh, he all, was a... All the greats, in fact, were on there. Otis Redding was a driver for a chuck berry kind of wannabe and yeah they had an open open uh you could try out for stacks it open you could just go in there and say i want to try out and he sat down at the piano and it turned out to be otis redding and that's <laughs> how they found him so yeah the guy who otis chauffeured obviously did not uh turn into chuck berry <laughs> no no but he was like so a rock and roller like berry they had, oh, I love it, but, you know, they had a little bit of studio time left and nothing else to do, and uh, so, yeah, <laughs> the history is made. That, but that's Memphis for you, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of what's so cool about it. It's such a laid-back, open place that incredible things like that really can't happen. Uh, and I would say there is really a great affinity between Chicago and Memphis, and music is, is a great way to uh, make that connection. The great Otis Clay, you know, who's from Chicago, uh, recorded in Memphis. Phil Johnson, who's still with us, is a, a Chicago-based musician with very strong Memphis ties. And of course, a lot of radio personalities go back and forth between the between the two cities. They're both linked very much by the blues, so uh, yeah, I think that they're kind of sister cities. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair thing to say. Except that Memphis has much better barbecue than we do. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> Most people want to argue about barbecue. It's not a fight. To me. Yeah, I, I wondered if you could take us through a little bit of the of where uh, Ernest Withers fit in. For those people that are not super up on American journalism, uh, there was a thriving uh, African American press that existed during that period. The Chicago Defender still publishes today here. I don't know what the equivalent would be in Memphis, but Ernest Withers was a contemporary of other photographers such as Teeny Harris, the legendary Pittsburgh photographer yeah. who photographed African American life during the same time period. And these people were extremely pivotal figures. When we're, we're talking about this book, I think it's really important to put it in a context that uh, for the African American experience, photography and documentation that they actually existed was something that was very new to Americans. The, the idea that African Americans could see people who look like themselves, see people in everyday life, see people doing normal things was new. It was not as if uh, during the 1800s and early parts of the uh, 20th century that African Americans could see themselves reflected at all in popular culture. So what Withers and, and Harris and other photographers were doing was was extremely important to the black community, which I think, Preston, is why you suggest that his... Um, I wouldn't say you use the word betrayal, but the idea that he was, as you put it earlier, working with uh, a group that was often seen as the enemy of the civil rights movement would be so striking and so profound. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the you speak of the importance of photography telling the story of black America. I mean, you've got to realize the uh, segregated America that we're talking about and that went for the media as well. And the depictions of African-American life and the civil rights struggle um, were not as, as prominent or as abundant in the white press as black citizens really hoped they would be. And so the black press, led very much by the Chicago Defender, which was the 
only African-American daily published in the, in the U.S. for quite a long time, uh, did something, they really evened the score as far as, as public perception and understanding of what African-American life was like. And really, Withers stepped, as a photographer, stepped into the black media at such an important moment because it was that photograph of Emmett Hill, the Chicago youth who was slain down in Mississippi that ran in uh, Jet Magazine that really propelled the push for civil rights to a, to a new intensity. It had always been there, but that picture of, of that boy really rallied everybody and gave everybody a very simple, automatic, common goal and, and understanding of the stakes to work. That was a unifying moment, as, as awful as it was. And so Withers uh, came into the black media right at that moment, right when the, the Hill photograph was, was uh, inspiring and intensifying a new level of civil rights commitment. And at the same time, you know, there was a, as I said, a segregated black media. So you had these black papers publishing all over the country, the Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American. Uh, you had uh, Johnson Publications, Jet and Ebony out of Chicago. That's yes. correct, yes. Yeah, so Withers worked for them as well. And uh, he was the go-to guy for all of these media sources down south. And so he's provided, you know, a much-needed visual record for what was going on because it was isolated and, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best thing for the powers that be for these stories and images to get out. I'll tell you a big one that ran on the, the cover of the Chicago Defender that really changed history. Withers was down in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956 at the culmination of the Montgomery bus boycott that Rosa Parks had helped begin by refusing to give up her seat on the front. And that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, as a young local minister at that time, had really helped to sustain through his activism. And that was really the event that propelled Dr. King to national prominence. And when the federal judge issued the order to desegregate the buses and basically let black people ride wherever they wanted to, Withers got on the first bus out of the barn that morning and waited for King. And so King and, and uh, Ralph Abernathy, King's longtime lieutenant, got on board, and Withers ended up taking the, the first picture of Dr. King at the front of the bus. Well, that ran on the front page of, of the Defender and other African-American newspapers, and that really helped to reinforce this growing iconic status uh, of Dr. King. And there was, I'll tell you another interesting little moment uh, from that story that you wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, Withers was working with an editor by the name of L. Alex Wilson, who ended up uh, helming the Chicago Defender for a couple of years at the end of his life. And Withers and Wilson are, are up at 4 o'clock in the morning and trying to, to catch this bus and, and capture the story in the best way that they can. And Withers, the photographer, asks his editor, he says, well, how, how do we... How do we understand what, what picture to take? How do we understand exactly the way to depict uh, this movement and these activities? And the editor just said very simply, you have to ask yourself, is it true? Does it hurt? What good does it do? And so that was getting back to your earlier point about the importance of photography at that particular time. That was really the ethos that guided uh, the photographer in, in telling these, these critical stories at that time. Preston, you talked about, uh, when you were talking about your grandfather working for the CIA, you mentioned the, the sort of uh, code of silence. And it, it got me thinking about um, the way um, institutional mentalities are kind of passed on. And that um, that sort of psychology is, is, a, is present in the book. I don't think there was any records of how uh, Withers felt about his, his informing. Um, but the closest thing that he got to, he did make a statement, um, and I don't know what the context of the conversation was, because the quote was published without a whole lot of context, but he said that he knew that he had FBI agents looking over his shoulder, and for that reason, he did not want right. uh, to, right. to learn any high-power secrets uh, or be trusted with anything high-level, because, you know, he might be pressured, and yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, and, and to get back to, you know, where, where the discussion was headed for a moment, it's this tension between, well, how, what do we make of this would-be civil rights hero working with this organization that 
uh, worked against civil rights in so many ways. And as you kind of pace your way through the story, the book, it makes sense because if you're with us, you're on the ground where uh, in Mississippi where there's no federal intervention uh, on behalf of black citizens. And then you see a much greater federal commitment to protecting black citizens in uh, Little Rock. He was there covering uh, that story with President Eisenhower called in the 101st Airborne to integrate Central High, protect the first black students on their way in. And he was in, uh, involved with another case called Tent City, which is lesser known, but it was a big voting rights case in West Tennessee uh, that helped really guide the Kennedy administration in their uh, strategy for how to pursue civil rights. That was kind of controversial, but that helped the Kennedys decide we're going to go for it as a voting rights issue. And so you can see through that increased federal involvement and breakthroughs like the, the Kennedy administration becoming more supportive of civil rights, you can see a moment there where it's not about J. Edgar Hoover, you know, trying to intimidate Dr. King and sending him the suicide letter and sending his wife the sex case to ruin him. You know, that sort of thing was not really public and uh, not, not at all public until much later. And so those sorts of issues would not have influenced Withers decision-making to participate. Rather, it would be these kind of instances where, you know, he sees federal agents uh, breaking down a, a voting rights scheme that, that prevented black citizens from going to the polls. You know, he sees the, the airborne protecting students trying to get into a school for the first time. So you see a moment of hope and optimism uh, for federal partnership with the movement. And, and since he was there and witnessed that, to me that indicates that those were really what, what guided him to participate. Could on you, the other side of it, as I touched on earlier, Memphis has its own character, and it is a hustling town. And everybody's on the, on the give and on the take. <laughs> That's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to ask about the, the, the Crump mayorship and, and Withers' father and the, the kind of mentality that he grew up around. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 one of Crump's uh, lieutenants compared the crump machine to the daily machine. So I think probably the, the basics of it are going to be familiar. Oh, that's fighting words there. over here. You're, you're talking to people in Bridgeport here. <laughs> Home of the dailies. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll choose my words carefully. But anyway, in, uh, in Memphis, the area that I have researched with the crump machine, you know, they ran the city like a, a, a civic dictatorship. But... Strangely, everybody everybody voted. You wouldn't know on the surface of it um, that there were real restrictions to the democratic process, except that you know the Trump candidate won ninety percent, ten percent every year, and uh, that was the atmosphere that Withers grew up in. And his father, this is kind of interesting too. Memphis always had very active black voting and black political participation, and so Withers' father grew up. Uh, and operated as part of that. So their house was a polling place and a registration place. Now all the votes went to the machine, but uh, that's simply how it was done at that time. And so that's, that's the environment that, that Withers grew up in. And he actually enjoyed some of the privileges of participating, helping out the crumb machine. Uh, he, Mr. Withers ended up being one of the first black police officers when the Memphis Police Department uh, integrate, integrated back in 1948. But at Memphis, you know, Beale Street has always been, you know, Beale Street located on Beale Street from the World War II era on. And Beale Street has just always been a place where, well, I'll give you an example. I mean, the South's first black millionaire built his fortune down there. And he started, he made his fortune in saloons, gambling houses, and brothels. And at the same time, he used those funds to build parks, you know, when, when black people were banned from public parks, to build uh, good housing when there was mostly slums and substandard housing around for black residents. And so Withers followed a similar path in a way. I mean, he had his incidents of, of graft and corruption in his life, but uh, he put it through college. And so... Being in this tough doggy dog kind of environment, you know, he, he did what he had to do, and uh, 
certainly he benefited financially from from working for the bureau. He was he was a paid operative, uh, and I, I assume it was a welcome uh, addition to his, his income as a freelance photographer. And his wasn't a unique case either. I mean, they the FBI had informants all over the place. Well, they infiltrated the Panthers. You know, that's NAACP yes. too. I think. Yes. Yes. Most definitely. Um, yes. And so. You know, one of the questions about Withers is, well, what kind of damage did he do? And uh, it's interesting. That kind of depends on how you look at it. He was very much against one of the big threats to comics. Whether it was real or exaggerated, I think everybody in, in the NAACP, including Withers, knew that they couldn't have a bunch of communists around without going to invite a bunch of unwelcome uh, federal attention and, and would cause more problems for them than anything else. And so he was on the lookout for communists uh, who were involved. And he did point the finger at a few, including a guy named James Foreman, who I think also came out of Chicago, pretty prominent civil rights leader with CORE. Uh, and so I don't know if he caused Foreman any trouble, but he definitely brought, uh, brought Foreman to the attention of the local FBI. And then once the militant movement got started, any kind of threat of violence, uh, Withers had his antenna up for that. And that was something else that he felt was going to hurt the movement as a whole. And therefore, and he said as much to his handler, this is where I'm getting this, I'm not making that up. Uh, any kind of violence was going to hurt the movement as a whole. He believed in the NAACP, you know, legal strategy that was proven to be effective in the Brown versus Board of Education case. He believed in uh, King's nonviolence. And so militants and rabble-rousers to him were a problem, and they were going to set back the whole movement. And so there were several people like that uh, that, he, that he identified. And uh, I know quite a few of the black power activists in Memphis, and they all had a very rough go of it their entire lives. How much the FBI attention had to do with that, I'm not sure. But, you know, so I, I would say that... that Withers' influence was probably pretty helpful along certain lines and detrimental to, to others, depending on what your philosophy was. I had a question regarding, so Withers was uh, appointed to the state alcohol beverage control board, and then he got nailed in a sting where they were trying to buy out a prisoner from the governor. Did that have any uh, influence on his work with the FBI? Was he looking at real serious trouble? Well, that's a good question. So. This uh, corruption charge you mentioned, that hit him in 1978, which was really the, the primary uh, years of his, his reporting to the FBI would have been throughout the 60s, and a little bit into the early 70s. Uh, as long as there was a black power movement in Memphis, he was pretty well on them. By the late 70s, I, he was not quite as active uh, as, a, as an operative. And he was, as you say, part of a, a widely corrupt state administration. Uh, the governor actually ended up uh, having to resign or being forced out. I can't remember which. Uh, the governor that Withers worked for in this capacity, but they were doing everything. They were selling the. Uh, they were selling state property. They were selling uh, state-owned vehicles. Uh, Withers was brokering pardons for cash uh, or uh, clemency for cash. Memphis truly is Chicago's sister city. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, everything was available, and, and he was part of that, and he did get busted. And that's interesting that you bring that up, because to me, he did get off a little bit light. So what ended up happening, um, so he was selling pardons, or he was helping to broker these pardons, and there was, there was documented proof that two of them had... Uh, gone through. That was actually what brought the whole scheme down, what brought the whole scheme down. Uh, he ended up facing a, a little charge uh, that had to do with the state alcohol board. Let me think of what it was. It was not a major charge, and he ended up getting about a year's sentence, and he did about six months in a halfway house. Uh, and, and so, though so he was it was a cool story. It was, it was a classic, you know, 70s uh, sting operation story where Withers and this highway patrolman brought a uh, strip club owner to a motel 
and the FBI were had the, were in the next room and had their camera and uh, listening equipment set up in Withers' room to TV set. <laughs> he didn't know because he was not the the operative in this. Uh, he in fact ended up getting getting taken down through that. But yeah, now that you mention it, I think he got off a little bit light there. All right. That's pretty good. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to come back real quick after we play a segment from uh, Bluff City, and then we're going to hear some underwriting because it's about the time for that break. But I do just want to make one note of things. Uh, we do not censor books here on I-94. However, we are bound by some FCC rules. Preston's book contains some language that is historically accurate that would be offensive to some readers today. We have uh, bleeped that out. I want people to know that's not Preston. That's not us. I also want to thank, as always, Shannon Van Volt, our reader. And I want to thank today Tamika Reed and Jamie Branch for providing the music, courtesy of International Anthem. You're going to hear a segment from Bluff City, you're going to hear some underwriting, and then we're going to be right back on I-94 Radio. In the fall of 1963, the Memphis Nation of Islam Mosque seemed on the verge of a growth spurt. To unveil its newly renovated headquarters, the temple minister planned a huge meeting and hoped to bring in the black Muslim star Malcolm X as a guest speaker. He circulated his plans to mosque leaders throughout the region, hoping to make Memphis the South's Mecca for a day. But on December 1st, Malcolm X made a remark that seemed to celebrate the assassination of President Kennedy. NOI leader Elijah Muhammad suspended Malcolm, preempting his participation in Memphis and any other official NOI business. The Memphis Mosque grand opening became a smaller party. Withers brought his third son Clarence, known as Billy, to hear a sermon at the new temple. The men sat on one side of the room, the women on the other. Above a freshly built rostrum, a banner displayed an American flag in the left corner and a Muslim crescent and a star on the right. Between the two symbols were the words, which one will survive the war of Armageddon? Christianity, Islam, slavery, freedom, suffering, justice, death, equality. In his sermon, the minister surprised Withers, attacking the Caucasian race. Withers had found this man quiet and likable offstage, but saw a changed person at the podium, spewing venom and vitriol at white devils and black Christians while sarcastically deriding the Civil Rights Bill, the Supreme Court, and public education. Three years earlier, when Withers began investigating the Nation of Islam, he had seen the social benefits of Islam and had moderated the Muslim message in his reports to the FBI. Now, although he had felt the billy club, tasted jail food, and seen casualties on his side, he had no sympathy for the extremist, militant, violent rhetoric coming from the mosque. He became suspicious. He secretly photographed one of the brothers. He sold Lawrence photos of four members of the temple, photos the mosque minister himself had commissioned Withers to take. One of Withers' pictures appeared in the official NOI newspaper, Muhammad Speaks Without a Credit Line, in the May 22, 1964 edition. The image shows six brothers, all wearing suits, two with bow ties, posing outside the storefront temple at 364 Beale. The FBI received a copy of the image as well. The Lumpen Week in Review is the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. Every week we present the best interviews, the most compelling stories, and the fascinating people we've featured on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review airs every Friday at 6 p.m. and then repeats multiple times throughout the work week. Don't miss the best of Lumpen Radio, only on the Lumpen Week in Review. Lumpin Radio and Pilsen Community Books present I-94 in Conversation live with Chicago author Laura Adamchek on February 21st. Kicking off at Pilsen Community Books flagship store on 18th and Carpenter at 7 p.m. sharp, this event features Adamchek's sharp writing from her newest work, Hardly Children. I-94 is taped in front of a live studio audience the third Thursday of each month. This program is presented by PCB and Lumpen Radio. Lumpen Radio is proudly supported by Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity help stage and promote events across Chicago. Game nights, comedy shows, charity fundraisers, and more. 
More information about Cards Against Humanity's outreach program is at chicago.cardsagainsthumanity.com. Type Force is back. One of our biggest shows of the year, Type Force 10, will take over the co-prosperity sphere this February 22nd. Showcasing artists who make magic with letters in any medium, Type Force 10 is presented by Firebelly, PMI, and Lumpin Radio. It's Type Force 10, a curated anniversary show at the Co-Prosperity Sphere this February 22nd. More information is at coprosperity.org. This show benefits Lumpin Radio. And welcome back to yet another edition of I-94. We have been talking uh, during this last half hour to the author of Bluff City, The Secret Life of Photographer Ernest Withers. Preston Lauterbach. Preston Lauterbach is joining us from uh, Virginia. And before the break, we heard our first excerpt uh, from Lauterbach's book. Preston, take us through a little bit of this. I chose that reading because uh, I thought it signified something you were talking about a little earlier in the show, about Withers' profound discomfort with rabble-rousers in... um, the civil rights movement. And it was interesting that one of the people he reacted so violently to was Malcolm X and the black Muslim movement. Yeah, well, first let me say that was a, a beautiful reading and, and presentation. I mean, I just had my goosebumps up all the way. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for putting that together, and thanks to the, the musicians and your reader for doing such a fantastic job. Well, we appreciate um, unfortunately, we already recorded the audio edition, otherwise I'd get them on it. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the Nation of Islam came to Memphis and set up on Beale Street in about 1960, and with her, that was one of his early cases, and it, it really showed him as a, a quite a savvy operative. You know, he was already pretty well established in the community, had his studio, little storefront studio there on Beale Street, just a few doors down from the, the new mosque, and he became friends with the brothers and became familiar, and he, you know, they would sell their Muhammad Speaks papers out on the street, and he would let them store some of their stuff in, uh, in his office right there, and he would invite them to hang out and converse with him. And so he really got to know them over a number of years. It was not a, you know, he was not a kind of quick snitch who was just going to catch somebody doing something and drop a dime on them to the cops. I mean, he really put a lot of time and uh, research into his work and the Nation of Islam is one of my favorite examples of that. So early on, Withers was really trying to figure out what they were all about because the FBI word on the NLI was that it was a viciously anti-white, un-American cult. That's what J. Edgar Hoover himself wrote in a uh, congressional brief um, in the late 50s. And so that was generally what the, the Bureau thought about the Nation of Islam. Whether Withers thought that, I don't know. But he got to know the members of the mosque there and reported to his handler that it was really more of an uplift organization, that these young men were often coming out of prison and they were learning uh, how to eat right, you know, to abstain from alcohol, to abstain from tobacco, to treat women with respect and not not beat up on them and curse them, uh, to avoid any of that kind of negative behavior. And so he really thought that it was an uplift organization and and I think that he really translated for them early on because the Bureau really wasn't in a position to get it. The the, the Bureau do I think to you know Elijah Muhammad's rhetoric the Bureau thought uh, it's a a militant extremist organization and I would say incidentally it was was fascinating for me as as a researcher to look at all of the civil rights organizations from the 60s whether it be the nation or Dr. King's group, they were called, um, they were treated almost like terrorist groups. They were called extremist, separatist, black nationalist groups. You know, whether it was a nonviolent group like King's group or a more outspoken group like the Nation of Islam, how they were looked at, and that was really interesting to me. But Withers at first, you know, translated for the Nation of Islam. Now, this is an uplift organization, brought about the example of a young man who was involved to it really taken the time to research uh, his African history and, uh, and his, his ancestry and his roots to, to uh, improve his education in that particular way. 
And there was even kind of a funny moment where the, the local mosque started a restaurant on Beale Street. And Withers went in and got a meal and reported back to, uh, to his handler. He said, nobody's going to eat here. They don't serve any pork. Getting back to your point, your point, your point about barbecue. Uh, and in fact, I uh, got to know one of the, the members of the mosque from back during that time. It's, it's still active in Memphis, uh, but I got, got to know a guy who was involved back in the, in the early 60s. And I said, well, why, why don't you think it took off? And uh, he said, you can't go against pork and Jesus on Beale Street. <laughs> people, love, people love Jesus too much and on Beale Street. People love their barbecue too much. So those, those were issues for the, the nation as well. And... Uh, Withers pinpointed the the uh, minister and said, "Well, what's the deal with all of this, you know, violent anti-white rhetoric?" And uh, the minister said, "Oh, I just got to say all that to the people in seats." It <laughs> 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 entertained the quality to uh, to the preaching that went on there. But you know, once that rhetoric got a little bit hotter, that that drew Withers' uh, attention, and, and he did inform the FBI uh, that things were picking up a little bit over there. That's interesting because, you know, we, we obviously have a, a long history, as, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, of uh, FBI involvement with uh, black civil rights groups here in Chicago. Uh, Fred Hampton, of course, was memorably assassinated by the police right. here in our city. One thing, I, and this may not be in the purview of your book, but I wondered if you could just touch on it briefly here. The, the FBI and, in fact, American law enforcement has a long history of cracking down on leftist organizations uh, and a far more troubled, problematic history with embrace of right-wing groups. In fact, uh, as, as historians in America have pointed out, the Ku Klux Klan uh, at, at its start had its roots in some Southern American law enforcement and was very closely intertwined with uh, a desire to keep uh, races separated. It had official imprimatur. So there has been a long-time embrace in our government of more right-wing uh, groups that, frankly, would be considered, I think, far more extreme than uh, Martin Luther King's uh, peaceful marches. I wonder if you could talk on that just, just briefly for a second, Preston. Well, you mean in terms of uh, uh, the way the government treated these white extremist groups versus the yeah. black extremist groups? Yeah. I think probably the, the really outstanding example of that was the, the Klan informant who, I think he was in Alabama, active during the, the Selma, uh, Selma March, I believe, 1963. And he was a witness to a murder. Um, and I believe that, and I don't know if he was involved in the murder in some way, but, you know, it was information that was available to the FBI. Basically, this informant, this Klan informant, indicated to the FBI before an act of violence happened that it seemed pretty likely that an act of violence was going to happen. And, and the government did not act on it. In fact, this, uh, this killing ended up taking place. I can't recall, was it a church bombing or was it an assassination of, of someone? But uh, there are examples of, at least from the 60s, you know, I, I couldn't speak to today because I haven't researched it, but there are examples of, of the government really dragging its feet. When it had information to, to act uh, to protect people, and I think that it's that the same thing happened in Mississippi uh, in '64 when all of the, the voting rights activists were down there uh, getting people registered, and uh, the murders of uh, those three young men took place. I believe that the FBI was very close to that particular group that, that perpetrated the killing, and again, I think that they were very slow in responding and in acting. Uh, so those are. Those are a couple of examples that, that do seem to be really out of whack. You take the Klan, I mean, an obvious terrorist threat, all they've ever done is burn crosses and, and intimidate and kill. That's what they've done, and everybody's known it. And then the Dr. King Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, was treated as, a, as an extremist organization. Uh, I'm definitely comfortable using that word with regard to the way that the Bureau looked at King, extremist. And you know what kind of uh, measures that they took to neutralize King in ever uh, Sending a sex tape to his wife, sending him a letter that seemed to not come from a colleague and suggest that, that uh, he ended. And then uh, Withers ended 
Twitter's story ended up opening the window to another, at least possible scenario in which the FBI uh, actively moved to, to neutralize King. I wanted to ask you, uh, in the beginning of the book, in, in 2005, you actually got to meet Withers, and he gave you a ride in his car. Uh, what was that like, and, and what led up to that? Well, it was fascinating because there was just something about his presence that was so, um, you know, being, being around him, it, it almost felt like time slowed down. Uh, it was just such a such an unbelievable presence to to be in, and there was something interesting about him. He was as, as famous and as established and as old as he was. He was still very legitimately interested, very sincerely interested in, in me and what I was researching, which was uh, the Chitlin Circuit and uh, some of that Beale Street nightclub culture. That's what I was uh, into at the time, and that ended up being the first book that I wrote. But uh, you know, I would just see him around town, and he would wear his, his little African hat called a kufi, kind of like what you see on Elijah Muhammad in old photographs, uh, and he'd wear his little American flag tie, and he'd look rumpled and look like he'd been at work all night, uh, but he'd be bumping around the grocery store, the drugstore, very friendly, very affable kind of guy, and so after seeing him running into him in public a couple of times, I finally just went up to him and introduced myself and invited myself over to his office, and he said, sure, come on. And so I went down to his office on Beale Street, and you know, Beale Street's a tourist attraction now, it's, it's not like it was during the 60s when he was there, but he still had his, his, old, his old office, and he had several big rooms, it was pretty dark, pretty messy. Uh, he had photographs kind of scattered all over the place. Not sure he knew where everything was. If he wanted a picture of B.B. King, he could have put his hand right on it. But uh, we had this funny thing that happened where he had a business meeting scheduled on top of when I was coming to just kind of hang around. And so that took priority. And he put me in this side room, this little storage room, where he could do his, his business meeting. And as he's leaving out of this room, he just turned back to me and said, oh, and don't touch anything. <laughs> closes the door, and so I start looking around, he's got pictures piled everywhere, and I'm thinking, golly, how am I supposed to not touch anything when I'm in the Withers vault? Did he know you were a journalist? You know, at the time, I really wasn't, and so uh, I was doing research more or less for fun. I didn't know where it was going to go, and and I told him, I said I was interested in the nightclubs and and that Chitlin Circuit culture, Um, and so that that was... the reason that I sought him out, and he was fine with it. But he thought he left me back there, and, and uh, I just kind of got bored. Meeting this went on forever, and so I eventually <laughs> did start poking around a little bit. And I knew I wasn't going to take anything or do anything um, really bad. So I picked up a pile of these pictures and start leaping through them, and then sure enough, the door opens. I told you not to touch anything! <laughs> but, you know, being a good, friendly Memphis guy, uh, we, we left out of the building, and my ride wasn't there, and so I said, well, I don't, my lift is, my ride isn't here, can I get a lift? And he said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I hopped in his car, uh, it was a classic old man car, like four-door old mobile or something like that, with that nice worn velvety upholstery and uh, his cigar smoke, and it was cool. We rode up uptown, and, and uh, he said, well, I can take you home, but i got to stop off real quick. I have a stop to make. It pulls into the Walgreens drugstore parking lot. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, he's just picking up some medicine or something or whatever else from the drugstore. But no, he comes out with the big yellow envelope because he'd had his, his pictures developed there. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, they did offer one hour of photography. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's like, uh, you know, buying a spray paint can for Van Gogh. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's <laughs> crazy to me, but that's, that's Memphis for you, I mean, it's very laid back, <laughs> very laid back, unpretentious place. Yeah, he was, he was a character, he was a good guy, a warm guy, um, I think that he had regrets about what went down, because he did speak about things in, in kind of oblique terms, he did talk about how he had been involved with this great big march the week before King was assassinated, 
and it ended up producing one of his major photographs, the I Am a Man photograph of all the sanitation workers, you know, hoisting their signs up that say, I Am a Man. And, uh, but that, that march ended up turning into a riot. And King had come to lead that march and had never had one go bad before like that. Uh, so he pledged to come back to Memphis. And so when, he, when King returned uh, to prove that he could lead a peaceful march and that everything in Memphis could be peaceful, that's when he was assassinated. Yeah. And so Withers was very regretful about uh, his role in that because he uh, brought the, uh, the signposts uh, that the men held their, their uh, signs on for that photograph. Those ended up being used as, as weapons in the riot. And so he spoke about that, and, and I think he did so with, with a heavy heart. And I don't know why, I don't think he would have spoken of that if there was something evil going on. Um, but as you've seen with the book, I mean, it's written like a mystery. It's, it's got all the evidence there, and you really have to decide for yourself. Right. What's going on? Well, let's take a quick, uh, let's dip back into Preston's book. We have another recording. Uh, we haven't, one, one of the things we haven't talked about is that, you know, Withers really was at the center of a lot of history. This is him in Arkansas with the Little Rock uh, Nine. And again, I want to remind everybody that Preston's book is historically accurate in terms of its language, but due to FCC rules, we have uh, bleeped some of it out. It's us, not him. Again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt, Jamie Branch, and Tamika Reed. As Ernest tallied nine kids in Memphis, nine more in Little Rock were making news. They were to be the first African-American students admitted to Central High School in the capital city of Arkansas. If only they could get inside. As L. Alex Wilson explained, in Little Rock, Arkansas, USA, Gov. Faubus ordered out the National Guard to prevent nine students from entering Central High. After a federal circuit court ruled in favor of integrating the high school, the governor had no legal means left to block the students from entering the building on September 23rd. That September Monday, the ever-dapper Alex Wilson parked his car two blocks from the school in downtown Little Rock, but Ernest Withers remained back in Memphis with his wife and baby girl. Around the perimeter of Central High, police barricades had been set up to keep protesters off school grounds. Wilson walked with reporter Moses Newson, a former Memphis resident who is now with the Baltimore Afro-American, and reporter Jimmy Hicks, like Newson, a veteran of the Till trial. The fourth black journalist in their group was Little Rock-based photographer Earl Davey, whom Wilson had recruited to replace Withers for the day. Wilson noticed a surly but silent pair of white men on the sidewalk close behind. He turned to Davey and he said he would not run from them. Wilson and Newson walked on ahead with Davey and Hicks behind. They moved to the center of the street. At 8.45, the school bell rang. A group of whites standing around the police barricade saw the four African-American journalists heading towards campus. Up went a shout, Look, here come the n***. Two men at the front of the mob moved to face Wilson, and his colleagues spread out their arms to block the way. One of the whites wore a shiny metal helmet. He said, You'll not pass. Wilson said, We are newspaper men. Hicks said, We only want to do our job. You'll not pass, said the man in the helmet. A city police officer came forward to ask what business Wilson and the others had. Wilson handed over his press credential. The cop told Wilson, you better leave. Wilson headed across the street, away from the mob. He could feel it on his back. He turned and saw the policeman standing still as the crowd flooded toward him. Meanwhile, the man in the metal helmet chased photographer Davy up the street, kicking him from behind. As Davy collapsed on the sidewalk, the metal helmet man took his camera and smashed it to pieces. An Associated Press reporter jumped into a phone booth and, watching, dialed the newsroom to dictate his account of the action. Wilson, in his silvery suit and snap-brim fedora, stood against the mob. He thought about Elizabeth Eckford, one of the nine students who'd quietly endured insults from the mob. The first kick came from his left side. He blocked it and did not strike back. Another man flew into Wilson's view, swinging a right hook, grazing his jaw. Wilson suddenly felt the full weight of a man land on his back. The impact knocked off his fedora, but he caught it. The man wrapped his arm around Wilson's neck and squeezed, snap with a lens shutter. Local news photographer Will Counts captured the assault on film. Someone in the crowd yelled, look, they're going into the school. The mob paused its attack to watch nine African-American students cross the lawn behind Little Rock NAACP executive Daisy Bates and disappear into Central High for the first time. 
The AP man in the phone booth assumed that the four reporters under attack had deliberately created a diversion in order to allow the students to slip into school. As the door closed behind the Little Rock Nine, Wilson bent to one knee and flipped an attacker off his back. The man picked up half a brick and stood. With 50 people behind him, he wielded the brick, yelling, Run, damn you, run! Wilson looked at the man. He recreased his fedora, put it on his head, and walked away. Pain crashed into the back of Wilson's head. He reeled but pulled himself up straight and found himself looking into the tear-filled eyes of a white woman. Wilson felt her sorrow, but knew she couldn't help. And that was a reading from Preston Lauterbox, Bluff City. Preston, that's that's an important and powerful moment, obviously, because he, he really was on the scene of history. And one question I wanted to ask you coming out of that, your, your book actually doesn't deal so much with the formal nature of his photography, and in fact, doesn't contain many reproductions of his photos. I wanted to ask if that was a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? If that was a, a calculated decision, if that was motivated by rights issues, or you just thought the other story was, was the way you wanted to go? Well, yeah, the reproductions are, are expensive. And uh, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have chosen more of his famous photographs. For whatever reason, I haven't been immersed in the story for so long, I, I got more interested in some of the obscure images, and so that's what you see there. I think I ended up licensing a dozen Withers images, and um, you know there's some cost involved. The uh, uh, the state, though, I have absolutely no complaints with. I mean, they've been very courageously supportive of uh, my trying to get to the bottom of this story and to tell the truth about it. Uh, that that is another facet of the story, which is which is really interesting, which is that. He left behind this huge body of work, uh, estimated million images, wow. and he has the opportunity to still be providing for his family through licensing of these images. Uh, and of course, and so his his daughter has led uh, a massive project to digitize and properly identify all of these photographs, the ones that were scattered around the studio when I went in there and he told me not to touch anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't really have a cataloging system other than what was in his head, right? So when he passed, it went with him. And uh, so his daughter is, is putting together a new and improved 21st century Withers archive. And I really wanted to, you know, I want that to be successful. Um, and they were good in, in terms of supporting me and, and providing the images that I needed to help tell the story. But I think probably the biggest, the biggest, the most prohibitive factor in publishing photographs is the cost of the, the license. And so I selected, like I said, I think about a dozen uh, from his archives and packaged them in, in various ways. But yeah, I, I probably should have included more of, of the well-known images. And we didn't even get to Elvis. I mean, he took some great shots of Elvis. I noticed you did sneak Elvis in there. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> that's right, he is in there. We do have a photo of him in there. Uh, but yeah, that's another you know, classic Withers angle, uh, is his music photography. And so he was there really at the rise of rock and roll in Memphis and, and captured a lot of brilliant scenes there. Right. But, you know, as a, as a photographer, I really liked his, I liked his hustle aspect. I think I was more drawn to his hustle than uh, any kind of composition or artistic um, commentary that I could offer on his work. That's, that's not my background. Anyway, I'm more comfortable with the journalism than I am uh, the, the visual arts. Uh, but, you know, he was good as a photographer. He, he could capture the, he could tell a, a good thousand-word story in one frame. That was actually his, his credo, was pictures tell the story. He had that on all of his business cards until uh, the day he died. They, that's, that's what was printed on his cards. I've still got one. And, uh, but he was good at really capturing the moment in, in one frame. He did some staging of, of scenes in order to, to get things just right in terms of the composition and the balance. Uh, he he set up the famous Dr. King on the bus photo. Um, you can see, if you look in, in Withers' archives, some of the images that were taken 
around the, the famous King image, and uh, you see the wizard's really looking for the right kind of angle and the right sort of cast of characters to really capture that moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was quite resourceful. Did good things with the, the available light in nightclubs, and so, <laughs> you know, he definitely had, the, he had great skill as a photographer, for sure. Cool. Preston, we are running out of time, and we want to make sure that you get the last word in. We do have one final recording, but we have been speaking with Preston Lauterbach. He is the author of Bluff City. is the secret life photographer, Ernest Withers. It's out now from Norton Books. Preston, thanks so much for joining thanks, us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate the, the high level of production that y'all have put into this. It has been a pleasure to be a part of. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, we're going to go with one, uh, one final reading from Preston's book, and we are back on Thursday. We're over at Pilsen Community Books with Laura Adamchek. You can catch us live. That's at 7 o'clock. Pilsen Community Books, I-94. I'll see you Thursday. Memphis's first march against U.S. policy in Vietnam was to take place on Saturday, April 23, 1966. It would commence at noon with a five-mile walk across the city to the main post office, where participants would mail anti-war letters to elected officials. Agent Loris asked Withers to cover it. The photographer agreed, saying he could mix in like a newsman on the job. He'd photograph every participant in the march, he said, with good facial views for solid identification. Lawrence himself showed up to observe, probably in a car at some distance. He saw Withers arrive over half an hour before start time. As the five-mile walk began, Withers moved through the crowd taking pictures. Lawrence marveled at his skill. Withers even convinced a couple of kids from a college newspaper to lug his equipment along the route. He counted 38 participants. Reverend James Lawson got out of a car and joined the march, distributing flyers detailing reasons to oppose the war. He seemed to feel comfortable with the ubiquitous photographer, confiding to Withers as they walked downtown that the march had been his doing, though numerous organizations sponsored the event and shared credit. All the while, Withers memorized the names of the people he photographed. He even noted the make and license plate on a car of supporters who cheered the marchers at one corner. His productive afternoon continued as the publishers of a subversive underground newsletter invited him to their secret headquarters. Sometime after 1.30, the demonstrators arrived at the downtown post office and mailed their letters. Even with the march over, Withers and Lawrence stayed to observe discussions taking place around the demonstration and to see how marchers interacted with bystanders. After Withers contacted Maxine Smith, executive secretary of the NAACP's Memphis branch, to gauge the branch's outlook on the anti-war movement, Smith said the local NAACP had opposed it and forbade its young members to participate. The organization as a whole purposely refused to get involved with the war in any one way or another. Withers asked Smith about the branch's most controversial member. She said she couldn't influence James Lawson and that his statements didn't reflect NAACP thought. A few days later, Withers delivered to Agent Lawrence 88 by 10 photos that he had taken during the march, with 33 participants identified. The informant expressed outrage at the marcher's anti-American statements, their arrogance and mannerisms, Furthermore, those beatniks were lucky the cops were there. They would have gotten beat up without police protection. The U.S. Army had taught Ernest Withers his trade, and he had become an independent businessman thanks to the GI Bill. He was a veteran of World War II. His father was a veteran of World War I. His great-grandfather had worn blue in the Civil War. Soon, his three eldest sons would all be in the U.S. Army. Whatever combination of cash and anti-communism had motivated Withers' espionage until now, the anti-war movement made it personal. Withers' view of the counterculture are echoed in a J. Edgar Hoover column published in the FBI's monthly bulletin the next February. Dangers awaited young men at institutes of higher learning, Hoover warned. Among them, a turbulence built on the unrestrained individualism, repulsive dress and speech, outright obscenity, disdain for moral and spiritual values, and disrespect for law and order. The whole counterculture had been spawned by a Communist Party conspiracy, according to the director. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. 
This episode featured Preston Lauterbach, author of Bluff City, The Secret Life of Photographer Ernest Withers, out now from Norton. This episode originally aired on February 17, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>